Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Nine, you are tuned to 102.73 Triple R. It's time for this week, and in fact, this year's first edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton, and uh, joining me on Skype, we have a oh, couple of Skype messages. Oh, oh Bron, they can't hear you. They're What's saying. happening there, Kent? All right, soon to be joining us is, uh, I'm going to thumb Sharko and Kate Mills. And while Kent gets them lined up, I'm going to do a few things first. Uh, Bron, yeah. they can hear me, which suggests that might be something on your panel. I'm going to race over and see you in one second. Okay, if you hear a little bit of background noise, that's um, that's Kent, um, a.k.a. Panel Beater, doing his magic to beat the panel in Studio 3. All right, thank you very much. Let's go first up to uh, to Tim Thorpe for Vital Bits. Um, yes, Tim is in studio and uh, we haven't seen each other for quite some time. Oop, I think I'm off air now, Kent. I don't know what's going on here. I can't hear myself through my uh, my headphones, though. There, I can hear myself now. I don't know if you can hear me. <laughs> we got Timmy. He's gonna he's gonna be able to wave semaphore signals at us um, and let us know whether we're on air or not. <laughs> I think we are. Uh, anyway, so yes, thank you, Tim, very much. Um, thank you, Peter Joseph Head, for uh, songs in translation, and thank you very much, Andrew, for soulful bits. Um, yeah, loved it bit of jazz trombone to get us going. And, uh, yeah, of course, you can catch Tim and Andrew next uh, Sunday morning for Vital Bits and for Tim Saturday and Sunday morning. Massive thanks to Fiona Scott-Norman and Jasmine Miller for this Chicken Life. Six weeks of uh, fascinating conversation quick, yeah. about uh, about chickens. I think we've got – I think I can hear uh, Kate there now. Kate, are you there? Kate. 
Now, I <laughs> I can hear Cade, but Cade can't hear me. So there's lots of Skype messaging going on in the background. We'll get there, guys. Hang in there with us. Um, it wouldn't. Uh, it wouldn't. With this, we'll call this an extension of our 2020 COVID. <laughs> so many Skype messages going on in the background as well. I'm going to run through today's lineup. Um, just while Tim and uh, Kent, who are the brains trust here at Triple R, get us sorted. Um, first up, I'm just going to go through. Uh, the, Yep, we can hear you there, Kent, Um, today's program. Okay, we're going to bring you some summer news shortly. There's been an awful lot going on in the six weeks that we've been away, so heaps and heaps of stuff going on. Um, Kate's going to give us an update on the Antarctic Krill Mission and um, some upcoming events on – I don't know if you heard me then. I felt like my mic just went off. Um, Upcoming events to uh, plug, including um, a clean-up dive. There is a scavenger – um, event happening next weekend so I'll talk to you about that one in just a moment um, sea, slug, sea Slug Census which Kate's going to bring you up to speed on and Summer by the Sea so lots to talk about we uh, also are going to cross to Sydney to speak with John Turnbull John is uh, with the University of New South Wales and he's just put out a paper uh, in conservation biology, really fascinating and potentially very powerful paper that explores and ultimately critiques um, the value of partially protected marine reserves. So really addressing the question, are marine protected areas all created equal? So um, as you'll know, if you've been following this program for a long time, marine protected areas cover a whole range of levels of protection. Uh, They can be completely... Um, what's sort of known as, as lockout zones where there's really nothing that can happen in there in terms of um, human impact, talking. right through to, um, you know, some arguably <laughs> quite impactful activities. So fishing, ranging through to gas and oil exploration, all kinds of different stuff. So um, are they effective in meeting their objectives to protect marine, marine life or um, are they conservation red herring? So John has asked that question um, and with some colleagues has put out this amazing paper just a couple of weeks ago. So we're going to speak with him about that and explore that issue a little bit further. And um, FUM, hopefully we'll get her on, <laughs> Is um, she's going to be talking about the culmination of the Eco Centre's six years of research into microplastics in Melbourne's big rivers and the bay. So this is really quite a big one. Um, we, we'll, you'll know again if you've been listening for a long time, um, this is what Farm does. This is what she's been doing for a very long time. And um, having a look, working with Neil Blake and all the other wonderful people at the Port Phillip Eco Centre, looking at how microplastics make their way into the bay. It's not a simple story, um, but of course, ultimately, it's our marine uh, life and animal, particularly obviously our animals, at the end of of that pipe that end up bearing the brunt of microplastics making their way into the bay. So things like nurdles, little products that are used in plastics manufacturing, but all sorts of other hard plastics that just get broken down through the process and make their way out in the bay. So that is our program for today. Um, I've still got Cade, uh, Kent, sorry, running around. Um, and have we got anyone online yet, Kent? Not quite. Well, they're both there. They yep. Okay, so um, the the go is, um, <laughs> Kate and Farm, can you hear me now? Doesn't look like it. 
Okay, so what we're going to do, I've got a couple of quick news items that I'm going to go through and I think then what we might do, um, Kent, is put on our first track and we can try and sort it out because it's a nice long one. We can work out what's going on technically and then come back to you. I'm going to do a couple of quick plugs because I really want to get these in and our show is so jam-packed that I know once we actually get into it, we're going to run out of time. Um, We're also going to cross to Terry Allen. I've just had confirmation from her. So she's actually um, on Anchorage near San Remo cooking breakfast but um, heading off um, on a sailing venture today down to the prom. So we're going to have a chat to her about what that entails getting from uh, Phillip Island all the way around. Think about it past Inverloch. They're going to go past, um, well, where Archie's Creek is. They <laughs> might be able to hear some live music coming from there and uh, make their way down to the prom. So looking forward to catching up with Terry Allen on that as well. All right, two quick plugs I want to get in. And um, then, Kent, I reckon we might play a tune while we sort this out. Uh, first is something that we announced towards the end of last week's program. It's the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery and they have their 2020 National Works on Paper um, exhibition, which is on. It actually kicked off on the 5th of December and runs for uh, three more weeks till the 20... Four more weeks, actually, till the 21st of February. Um, so three more weeks. Yes, I can't count. Three weeks. So make sure you get down for that, um, particularly if you're on the Mornington Peninsula. Go and check out the Regional Gallery because uh, there's some – look, it's it's 20-odd uh, years of fantastic um, artwork, which is on display, and uh, you can check that one out. We'll give you some more details on that. But there's only three weeks left of it, so I really wanted to promote that one. The other one, of course, is the Seaside Scavenge event, which I mentioned earlier. So it's called Spring into Scavenge McRae. Um, It's taking place next Saturday, 6th of February, from 9 until 2 o'clock. The location for that is George Kilburn Park in McRae. Um, So they've sent us a little message here. For people who are keen to connect with your community, clean up your local environment, win some awesome prizes, who doesn't love that, and groove to some funky live tunes. So hosting a waste education event called Spring into Scavenge. And uh, once you've registered, you'll get the... Um, the exact details of of where you need to rock up for that. So uh, we will put a link to that on our Facebook page. Thank you, Jackie Younger, um, for sending that information through to us. Um, We'll put a link to that. You can can find it quite easily um, through Eventbrite, but we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page as well. It is 9.14. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. And just before we get Cade and Farm in, because we have sorted out our little technical problems, uh, just a quick message from Jackie Younger. Thank you so much. Just letting us know the Seaside Scavenge event in McRae next weekend, next Saturday, sorry, or this coming Saturday. It's not a clean-up dive. It's a beach clean, which is great. Would have been great either way, but it's a beach clean. So thanks for the correction, Jackie. All right, let's go. Let's kick off 2021 in earnest with uh, Cade Mills and Fum Sharka. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Ron. Yes. Am I there? You are indeed. And Fum, are you there? Hi, I hope so. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. We're done. We're done. We're sorted. Right. We, we can uh, we can get on with the show. Hey, um, first up, congratulations, Fum. Ten years in Australia. I just wanted to mention that one up front. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been uh, quite a ride. <laughs> Excellent, and it's been uh, it's been an absolute joy having you um, as part of this program as well over the last few years. So we're we're very proud to um, have been part of your uh, of your you know your journey here, living here now, which is awesome. Um, we haven't done our usual weather report uh, because of what was going on. Um, so and <laughs> mostly because you have it. Farm, um, do you want to do a quick weather uh, forecast for today, and then let's just launch straight into some news? 
Sure can do. So Melbourne area today is a max of 22 and partly cloudy. We've got light winds becoming southerly, 15 to 20 k's an hour in the middle of the day and then becoming light in the late evening. And it's pretty much the same for Geelong and the surf coast area today, uh, but just with a max of 20 degrees today. Uh, for the tides north of the bay in St Kilda, the next low tide will be at 12.17 p.m. And Port Phillip Head's next low tide will be at 2.43 p.m. That's your express news for today. <laughs> Excellent. Hey, thanks. So um, I mentioned at the start of the program, I think you could hear me, even though I couldn't hear you. Is that right? Not really. Not really. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a quick rundown on what I've covered also, also um, so far, which is basically just a rundown of the show today and mentioned just um, in this little segment, we're just doing a little overview of some of the, the news that has passed passed us over the last six weeks that we've been off air. Well, um, Triple R, of course, hasn't, but Marinara has. So um, who wants to kick off? Let's. Um, what have you got there, Kate? Um. I'm going to talk about krill. This one just came across my desk a couple of days ago. Krill, I mean, we all know that whales eat it, but what else do we know about it? That's probably the extent of my knowledge. Do you guys have any idea how big it is? A krill? Yeah. Oh, it's tiny, right? Like a tiny little animal, like Like, a crustacean thing? Yeah, about two mil? Yeah, well, that's what I thought too. They're up to six centimetres long. Oh, really? That's the the first thing. You're not going to be throwing a, a krill on the barbie. But they are a lot bigger than I envisaged. I always think of like the mice and that you see witty sea dragons eating when I think of krill and sea monkeys, but they're not. They're actually a lot bigger. And it's also a massive fishery. So it's a massive fishery in cold water. And there is a voyage to Antarctica that left two days ago on the RV Investigator, which is going down there to learn more about krill in that region because the fishery is looking at expanding. And the part of that is there is the biomass of krill is something like about 500 million tonnes which is pretty much equivalent to the biomass of humans on the planet. So there's just a few of them out there. Um, But what they're looking at doing is trying to get a better idea of what's there before they open up the fishery. And the best thing I love about this story and the reason I brought it to the table is that they're taking down some equipment called a swarm study system, but they don't actually know if it's going to work. So before they've done the work, science is always full of stories of, oh, we did this and we're awesome. Everything works fantastically. But you never get to follow something from, we're taking this thing, we're hoping it's going to work. We don't know, but we'll keep you posted. So they're taking this system down and what they're going to do is be able to lower it. Basically, it's a whole lot of cameras attached to a floating frame. And the plan is to lower it into swarms of krill so they can identify the species, the sex and the size to get a better idea of what's actually going on in that as opposed to going, yep, there's a swarm, that's it. So you can actually keep an eye on it and I'm gonna keep an eye and keep everyone informed of it. And you can check where the RV investigator is, which is a couple of days steam off Tasmania at the moment. It's 10 degrees, no, 10 degrees in the air and about six degrees in the water. Um, And you can follow it live. Yeah. So I'll, I'll get they, this posted. What did they use the the krill for if they want to start a fisheries? Is that for things like uh, the you know putting like a krill fish oil in capsules for your health or? So it has been it around for, for quite a while. Um, what they're looking at do is the expanding into regions where they haven't been. So it's been around since the eighties, um, and there's been fluctuations in catch. The the idea is to have a sustainable fishery. Most of it is actually feed. So it goes into aquaculture, oh. livestock, pet food, and then a small amount goes into the capsules that we see. But it's a massive resource, very important, obviously, for the marine life in the Antarctic. But it's also been used for quite some time. But sustainability is sort of the key here. That's why they're getting a chance to investigate it before they open up into other areas. We'll keep you posted. 
That's great, Kate, and fascinating how you know it's just another great example of what happens when you put money into research and just the, the improvements that have happened over the last 20 years that we're now looking at actually being able to explore population dynamics of krill rather than just seeing them as just a great big mass of, you know, whale food or obviously it's an industry as well. But, um, yeah, absolutely fantastic stuff. Um, Farm, what have you got there? Well, um, looking forward rather than uh, looking back, um, the Eco Centre is actually organising a culture and nature festival uh, this month from the 24th of Feb to the 27th of February, um, just to get more people involved from cult different cultural backgrounds in environmental protection. And um, as part of the Culture and Nature Festival, on the 25th, on the Thursday, we are doing another online snorkeling activity that you can sign up for uh, online with the Eco Center with my colleagues, uh, Ben Franciscelli, who's been on the show before, a paleontologist, and uh, also with... Uh, uh, with Matt, who is one of the wonderful uh, marine ecologists at the Eco Centre as well, who's got lots of experience in Antarctic studies. Um, so come along and uh, ask all of your questions. And the wonderful thing about this is that there will be a Chinese interpreter who will be interpreting everything in Mandarin as well. So if you have any uh, people in your area and in your community or in your family who speak uh, Mandarin, then come along and, um, yeah, join us for uh, some Q&As. That's great, Farm. So the details for that again? Uh, so it is, the, the Culture and Nature Festival is from Wednesday the 24th of Feb to Sunday the 27th of Feb and online snorkeling is on the 26th in the afternoon and I'll be sure to post some links to our Facebook page as well. Great. And we'll continue to, um, to plug that one over the next couple of weeks because, yeah, really great activities that are taking place. Um, Kate, you had a couple of things to plug too, I think. I, I did. Um, look, I'm going to do some self-promotion here on this one. I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago for Coast Care, Summer by the Sea. Um, we always talk about Summer by the Sea. Unfortunately, this year it moved online. It usually you know, activates hundreds of people around the coast or thousands of people. But it moved online, so I gave a talk on the Sea Slug Centre. So instead of just talking to people about slugs, I actually went and did one in a tidal cycle, sat in a rock pool to see what I could find over the course of three hours with a couple of friends. Um, I'm not going to give away the, the whole story and what we found, but we did find a lot. But the presentation goes into how to find and where to find them, the places that they were found. And it is basically like, kind of like FOM's virtual snorkel is kind of what I take you on. But this is in the lead up. They're going to extend. They're only going to put them out for a week or two, but they're actually going to keep them online. So if you go somewhere by the sea, slugging it out for science, the presentation will be up there for the month of February, which is perfect because it leads into the next sea slug census and the first one for a year, which will be on the Labor Day weekend in March. So starting on my birthday, which is Friday the 5th of March and going through to Monday the 8th of March. So if you want more information about the sea slug census, jump onto the Victorian National Parks Association and type in sea slug census. You won't get too many other results for it. And you can find some more details there on how to get involved. And I cannot wait. Keep in well, keep you posted on that one too. Yeah, we posted a, a photo. I think it was one of the – there are a few award-winning photos from um, last year's Sea Slugs census, I think. Um, P.T. Hirschfield, who's a very long-term and dear friend of ours here at Radio Marinara, the photo that she took of those pink nudibranchs was just extraordinary. So, yeah, we put that on our Facebook page. But, uh, yeah, very exciting. Are you going to call it Nudie Watch at any point, Kate? I can't get my head. Uh, <laughs> well, you just can't let go of that, can you, Bron? There would be some people that enjoy it. I actually spoke to someone the other day who has a lisp. So the year that we did We See Sea Slugs by the Seashore, 
absolutely did their head in. <laughs> and <laughs> I think they would much prefer Nudie Watch. <laughs> I'll run my own little private campaign on that one. Um, <laughs> 9.24, we're going to move on because we've got so much to get through still. There were just one th- couple of things. I had so much news and I haven't really touched any of it apart from those plugs I mentioned earlier. Uh, one I do want to just get out there because there's been a bit of mainstream media on it too. Um, uh, just some great work by the Victorian Fisheries Authority. You would have seen this one. It actually got a, a well, you might have, I shouldn't say would have, but might have um, got a fair bit of mainstream media coverage as well, uh, Some a Mornington abalone haul. So there were 126 black lip abalone, 76 of those were undersized, so most of them, and one undersized green lip abalone uh, that were, uh, so commercial quantities of abalone that were taken um, from the Mornington foreshore, which of course uh, is not allowed. Uh, so, yep, good work uh, to the um, Victorian Fisheries Authority. I believe that came about from a call um, from uh, from a concerned uh, person who spotted them and then called uh, their hotline to let them know about it. So, yeah, look, if you do see anything like that that you're concerned about, make sure you do call their hotline. Um, and uh, likewise, some illegal calamari catch, which, uh, you know, when you actually look at the, the report, it doesn't look – really? Because there are 23 calamari that were caught, and you think, well, that doesn't really seem to be that many. Um, the catch limit, uh, I think, is 10. Yeah, 10 per person per day. But the issue was that the person – other than, yes, of course, they've got double more than they're what they're supposed to catch. Um, but what uh, this person was doing was returning um, the the calamari to the water um, dead when a larger calamari was caught. So there's a, a name for that type of activity, which is called high grading. And obviously, uh, you know, they're basically upsizing, so dumping their dead catch and taking more live ones. So, again, good work. Um, the number that you can call for that, it's pretty easy, 13 fish. So 133474-13fish if you want to report uh, suspicious or illegal fishing activity. 9.28, you are here on 3RRR, Radio Marinara, our first program back for 2021. Crossing now to San Remo to speak with Terry Allen. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Bron. How are you? Great to hear you. Oh, great, great thanks. Since it's been a while and uh, <laughs> missed the last couple of weeks, we're busy and um, yeah, we're sit- sitting here on a, on a yacht rolling around a little bit, but just having a nice uh, morning coffee. Oh, very good. Now, you're about to uh, set sail from San Remo, literally, and head down to Philip Prom, um, not to Philip Prom, the Prom, Wilson's Promontory. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to catch you on that. What's involved with a trip like that? Uh, um, well, quite a bit of planning. In fact, unfortunately, the wind is uh, going to beat us, so uh, we're going to—it's going to turn to an easterly, and uh, we unfortunately are going to have to change plans. But it will be lovely because we're going to go right up through Western Port Bay instead. And so, uh, a few of us have never sort of sailed up through there. Um, and uh, one of the really tricky things is the, is the tide. So. Western Port, I mean, we all know, probably many people know about the tides of Port Phillip Bay and Slackwater and all that, but Western Port's also very tricky and very tidal. So we've had to do all sorts of calculations of time and tide and wind and, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it should be, all, should be nice, should be worth it. And you'd be pretty good at that too with, um, you know, with your extensive history and experience with diving, just suddenly having to change plans in accordance with the weather, whatever, yeah. you know, whatever nature decides to throw at you, you really have to adapt, yeah. don't you? Yeah. Oh, look, we, we probably could have got to the prom maybe like tomorrow, but um, the, the problem was then it will change to the westerly and then 
um, it wouldn't be hard to get back home. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, anyway, so um, no, it's very nice. We had uh, on that miserable Friday, uh, if you remember in Melbourne, the pouring rain, um, which was lovely rain, but not nice to be standing in sailing. And so we took t- turns, one hour each, um, but we had a beautiful big pot of uh, common dolphins right in the middle of the bay, just followed us for about half an hour, so it uh, really uh, cheered us up. <laughs> yeah, and this was in Port Phillip Bay, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yep. in, in the bay, right, right, quite northern, actually, which I was quite surprised, so yeah, so that was cool. So what are you hoping to see when you um, have your trip around Western Port today? Um, well, we... Out in Bass Strait, we had a beautiful run yesterday. Um, we had like 15, 20 knots, so if we turn this into a sailing report. Um, and lots of sheer waters out, so that was fantastic. Lots of uh, Australasian gannets, so, you know, use the power of the waves and, um, oh, incredible. Um, and we had a couple of seals, and as we went past the nobbies, of course, we had a few young seals, so that was lovely. Um, but, yeah, heading up into Western Port, um, I'm just reading up about it now, but, yeah, lots of uh, hopefully some beautiful uh, bird life and um, we might try a bit of snorkelling, see if we can see see a few fish. We'll probably stay, we'll go to Towles. I know further north it gets quite muddy and um, it might be a bit, bit more difficult. But, um, yeah, it's, sort of, it's quite interesting. It's, it's so close to home and yet I don't... Yeah, many people don't know it as well. And we're also going to try to go on to French Island and have a walk around there. Yeah, great. I'll take some photos, Terry, and send them to us. We'll pop them on our um, on our Facebook page. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And just dive-wise, I've been out a couple of times, Blair, Gary and Rye, and, uh, I mean, I'm sure Kane uh, and others have mentioned it, but the nudies are just going off. <laughs> oh, there's just like, oh, my Lord. There are people that are just, oh, I don't know how many species they're up to now, but incredible like it's just new species all the time whether they're just being found or whether they're like coming in you know warmer water or whatever but yeah really mind-blowing so um yeah fantastic sites we're very lucky have to have a talk about maybe developing a nudie bingo card (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah absolutely i think that i think they've just done a sea slug census or they're going to do another one soon i can't remember yeah i think it's it's in march yeah that's right yeah yeah, awesome. Yeah, All right, we're going to move on. Lovely to speak with you, Terry, okay. and have a great sale Bye. today, and we'll catch up with you soon. Okay, see you guys. Bye. See ya. Bye. Terry Allen there, our, um, our dive reporter, and um, for today, our sailing reporter. So awesome stuff. 9.37, and you're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Marine protected areas have done a lot for protecting individual marine plants, animals and their collective ecosystems over the various timescales they've been established. But here's the question, are all marine protected areas created equal? New research suggests uh, that was published on the 15th of January in Conservation Biology suggests that the answer to the question might be no, with solid evidence that partially protected areas, uh, so their marine areas, uh, marine reserves that allow some forms of fishing, they're limited in their effectiveness and don't meet their conservation objectives. So here's the question. Are partially protected marine protected areas a red herring for marine conservation? To answer this question, we're very pleased now to welcome to Triple R from the University of New South Wales, lead author John Turnbull. Good morning, John. Welcome to Triple R and to Radio Marin. Good morning and thanks for having me on the show. Oh, great to have you with us. Let's cut straight to the question and then a whole bunch of other questions to follow. Are marine protected areas that offer only partial protection, are they in fact a red herring? 
Well, our conclusion was that certainly in the study that we did, which covered the southern half of Australia, the answer is yes, they, they really are a distraction uh, and they divert scarce conservation resources from true protection. And so we came up, the best way we could find to describe them was as a red herring, um, given that they really don't deliver in terms of uh, ecological um, benefits or social benefits and they also um, take up money and space. Let's look at the difference between marine protected areas um, because they're not all created equal. So those that offer a higher degree of protection and those that allow various forms of human activity. Um, so I mentioned at the start of the program that could be anything from line fishing to you know full-blown gas and oil exploration. What are the key differences in terms of restrictions with marine protected areas? Uh, so... Uh, you, you have a range of zones typically in a marine park and it differs from one state to the next and they're all called different things. So they might be called, for example, Marine National Park, which is a fully protected area and I think that's what they're called in Victoria. They're also called things like sanctuary zones or no-take areas. But basically, if you're not allowed to harm or take animals or plants, any animals or plants, then that's fully protected. If you're allowed to... Um, do what we call extractive activities where you're allowed to take things out of the area so catch fish or in some cases even mining is allowed in some jurisdictions um, then clearly that's not fully protected and we call that partially protected uh, and so our big study around southern australia looked at 56 sites and we compared three types of site a site that's fully protected a site that's partially protected that allows, for example, it might allow recreational fishing but not commercial fishing, and then areas outside reserves. And the net takeaway was we couldn't find any difference between partially protected areas and areas that weren't in reserves at all. That's extraordinary, isn't it, when you think about that? So just to repeat that, no difference in areas that are partially protected to uh, to areas that have got no protection at all. Um, and and the, the consequence of finding that sort of discovery, you can go in one of two ways, can't you really, John? One is to say, well, why bother offering any partial protection? You might as well just leave it as it is. Or the flip side to that is, well, if you're going to protect an area, then you might as well do it properly. Well, yeah, and the problem with these, I mean, it's, it's not that there's a problem having areas where you might say, well, let's allow recreational fishing and not commercial fishing because, you know, that's good for the recreational fishers. Well, that's fine, but let's not pretend that that's also delivering conservation benefits. Mm. So two-thirds of Australia's marine territory is already open to fishing and is outside reserves. So there's only one-third that we put into reserves, and of that third, three-quarters is only partially protected. So we're... In a way, we're throwing our conservation money away because if we, we've got limited dollars, we've got limited space that we can allocate, and if we allocate it using these rules that are only half effective or not effective at all, then that, that money could have been spent on full protection, which would have delivered real conservation benefits. I've got um, Farm Shaco and Cade Mills here with us on Skype as well. I can't see them. I know that you can, John. Um, Farm Cade, oh, I'm assuming you've both got some uh, some questions for John. Most certainly do. It's great to be able to see someone, even though we can't see you, Brom. We can actually see John all dressed up like a fish. Um, <laughs> no, John, what I love is the... Um, I guess what you're doing is dissecting the language around this protected area issue in that like 
the call has always been for fully protected marine areas. So whenever anyone's campaigning and whenever um, work is being done to look after an area, they're calling for full protection, no take, no extraction. Yet, obviously, language has crept in where they're using the word protected, but still allowing this sort of exploitation. Are you finding, does it vary between states? Is this a problem where different states are using different language or federally? Like, there's no, I guess, um, dictionary to sort of say, if this is what you're doing, call it this. Um, it, are you finding, is it a political thing or is it just uh, different states doing different things? Yeah, and look, the language is a problem because people don't understand what what these areas do and don't do. And a separate study done by researchers uh, in Victoria, Monash University, uh, published in the same year as ours last year, they interviewed people and said, what do you think a marine protected area means? What do you think when we call a marine reserve? What does it mean? And most people were unhappily surprised to find out that we're calling these areas protected areas and yet they're open to all of these extractive pressures. So I think it's fair to say that public expectation is if you're going to call an area a reserve, it's going to deliver conservation outcomes and it's not going to allow the extraction or harm to animals and plants. So I think the language that we're using is confusing people. Um, in our own study, we found that whilst almost 80% of people in fully protected areas understood that they are in one that was fully protected, only 12% of people in partially protected areas knew that that's what they were in. So they, the, the majority of people either thought they were in a fully protected area or they weren't in a reserve at all because they couldn't see any difference between this reserve and, and around the corner. Right. Whereas in fully protected areas, they could see a difference. And that was also one of our findings was people would say, look, I see a lot more marine life here in a fully protected area, but they don't see a difference when they're in a partially protected area. John, do you think that applies to land based parks as well? Do people understand the difference between a national park and a state park or a state reserve for, for you know an environment that they can actually see and I think that's maybe part of this issue that we you know as we all know what marine environment for the majority of people is, is out of mind out of sight um, out of sight out of mind but do you think that applies to land-based reserves as well? Well whilst that wasn't in our study there are certainly the the, the different uh, levels of reserve are just the same in terrestrial as well as marine uh, system. So the, the system that we all tend to use is called the IUCN system and it has a rating from one to six. So a fully protect area is level one, two or three. And then levels uh, four, five and six allow varying degrees of uh, extractive pressures and other impacts. And that system applies on land as well as in the water. I think the big difference is that it's pretty universal around Australia. When you walk into an area, it's called a national park, you know what you're walking into. You know you're not allowed to harm the animals or plants. Whereas when you walk into a marine park or a marine reserve or an aquatic reserve, they're called so many different things and they mean so many different things. Um, people don't really know what they're walking into. And certainly their expectation is if you start putting the word reserve or park on signs, the expectation is that the marine life is going to benefit from that. Fum, um, I know that you're there with us as well. Did you have a question for John? Yeah, I do. Uh, this is a very important piece of research, John, and really well done. And 56 sites around southern Australia is, is no mean feat to compare those to each other. What are you hoping that this research will now change in terms of legislation and policy? Look, I think 
as I as I said before, I think that there's no problem having areas that we put aside for certain uses. And if we want to put aside an area for social reasons to to benefit, that's that's perfectly fine. But let's not mislead people, and let's not pretend that when we quote to the world, we say we've got 36% of Australian waters in marine protected areas, right? And that number is used a lot by lots of people. Um, I'd like to think that when we use that number, that we're actually telling people what's truly conserved rather than, well, actually of that 36%, three quarters isn't actually protected. So the real number is 9%. Uh, I think we need to start being more honest about uh, what's truly protected because ultimately the future generations are going to suffer from this. If we're not protecting things properly and we're fooling ourselves, uh, the marine life doesn't know it anything of this and so it just goes about its what its ways in the ocean and so ultimately we're going to end up with an impoverished ocean loss of biodiversity less fish for everybody uh, and it will sneak up on us because we haven't been um, honest about what our conservation um, areas are actually doing and so next thing you know we find well hang on how did that happen how did we lose these species well one of the reasons is we've been pretending that three quarters of our marine park the state is actually protecting that species when actually it isn't. Yeah, that's right. Um, I read, John, there's a, what's called a high ambition coalition of 50 countries in the world. Um, Australia is not one of them and need to make that point. Um, so there's a pledge to protect more than 30% of the planet's lands and seas by the end of this decade. Do you think Australia joining that pledge uh, would make a difference or does it kind of tap into what you've just been talking about, that the sort of protection that is being um, spoken about with this pledge, is it is it really just a furphy? Well, I, th I think pledges like that are important because they show intent and they tell the public about priorities and, and they tell the public we care about conserving our marine life. In, in you know, in southern Australia, in some parts of southern Australia, we have 80% level of endemism, which means 80% of the species in some parts of southern Australia are found nowhere else in the world. And that's something really special that we should be looking after for ourselves, for future generations, but also for everyone on the planet. And so I think making statements like that, um, whether we call it 30 by 30 or um, high ambition, really matter. But if we're going to make a statement like that, we want to be talking about 30% real protection, not 30% pretend protection. Mm. We're going to have to move on, John, because um, we've got a, a big segment with Farm coming up. But I want to stay in touch with you on this because I know there's a proposal to establish a park, a marine park in Sydney. And obviously the results um, from this research that you've just had published, you know, could potentially make a really big impact on the sort of level of protection that gets up with this proposed park. So um, we stay in touch with us. Can we get you back on and follow this one? through absolutely and, and i think it's important to stay in touch because the trend is actually going in the wrong direction right so instead of us taking partially protected areas and converting them into full protection we tend to be going the other way and in australia in the last five years or so we've actually been downgrading fully protected areas and converting them into partial so we're undoing maybe decades of uh, value that have been built up in those sanctuary zones and opening them up to fishing so while ever the trend is going in that direction, we really need to stay on top of it and be outspoken about it and, and tell the people that are making the decisions, we care about our marine life and want to see it properly protected. Yeah, excellent note to, to end this chat on and we will continue um, to catch up with you, John, throughout the year. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been great speaking with you and really looking forward to catching up again soon. Thanks, guys.
We've been speaking with uh, John Turnbull from the University of New South Wales about um, some really, really important research that's just been published. And yes, we will follow that one through throughout the year. 9.51, you're listening to Radio Mariner. We are on our toes this morning. And um, Farm, over to you. This is really exciting. We were, we were talking late last year about um, – we were going to do it late last year. We ran out of time talking about this incredible research that you and your colleagues have been doing with the Eco Centre on microplastics in Melbourne's big rivers and in the Bay. Tell us all about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I can't tell you all about it because I'm holding the report in my hand and it's pretty fat. Uh, but I will definitely give you a quick overview of the findings. And, um, yeah, it is, uh, it's, it's been a quite intense research project, I can't lie. It's been uh, five and a half years in the making of uh, monthly microplastics trolls in the Yarra and Maribyrnong rivers and three years of research by our beloved uh, baykeeper, Neil Blake, who uh, spent countless hours on beaches around the bay doing microplastic surveys with community members from different community groups who have partnered with us on this wonderful project. Um, and now it has finally all been uh, bound in a, uh, in, in a booklet and it's uh, ready to be out, set out into the wild world uh, for people to read and inform themselves. Um, so I'll summarize very shortly some of the outcomes. The reason why we were doing Queen Bay Blueprint, which is the name of this project, um, was because we didn't actually know anything about microplastics in Australian waterways. And this, this research is, uh, is an Australian first in the way we have done it and uh, also in, in the fact that it's uh, done in rivers instead of the oceans because most microplastics research has been done in oceans and uh, saltwater systems. And um, one of the reasons why we wanted to do this is not just because nobody knew that there were microplastics in Yarra and Maribyrnong, but we also didn't know what the extent of the problem was and what the kind of um, most offending pieces of litterware, if that makes sense. Like we wanted to get some insight into different types of items that we would find and see if we could trace them back to the source and, and stop them um, there from getting out in the first place. Another reason why we wanted to do this is to establish a baseline of these numbers, of this litter pollution quantification over time. Because really, if you want to do anti-litter campaigns, especially if you want to do big scale ones, you really got to have a baseline to evaluate if your program or your project has actually been effective, right? So if you have a baseline of plastic pollution and after your uh, implemented project, you'll see that that baseline has changed and it, the litter has become less, then you know you're being effective. So that was another reason for us to do this research. Um, well, it won't uh, surprise you that the news is not exactly great when it comes to microplastics in Melbourne waterways. Um, we have calculated that uh, two and a half billion pieces of litter reach the bay on an annual basis from the Yarra and the Maribyrnong together. So that's just two rivers, uh, not counting any other drain outfalls and rivers going into the bay. Uh, and that is also calculated from the top 20 centimeters of the water column. So that's where we, that's where we have taken the samples. Um, now that's a great, a fantastically great number, obviously, and quite mind boggling. Um, but what's really interesting is that 85% of that are plastics that are smaller than 5 millimeters in diameter, right? So 85% of that is microplastics. And it's a very under-researched part of, uh, of plastic pollution research that's been done in Australia. Um, Just the to... most offending items are hard plastic fragments. So those are tiny pieces of uh, basically broken up 
bottles and bottle caps and things like that. Basically, if you have a hard plastic item and you drive over it with your car five times, it bursts into a million pieces and that's what gets into the waterways. And it's not really, you can't really recognize uh, what, it, what kind of item it used to be. And those make up, um, that's, that's about uh, over, it's 80, oh, 75%, yeah, 75% of all of the litter or the microplastics going into the bay is made up out of, out of those plastic fragments. Um, it won't surprise you, especially if you're doing cleanups on a regular basis, it will not surprise you that polystyrene is uh, the very questionable number two uh, of most polluting items. Uh, polystyrene gets everywhere. Um, it is a very persistent issue. And our friends at the Yarra Riverkeeper Association uh, have done some fantastic research on that as well and uh, are doing projects with finding out where this stuff comes from and stopping at its source. Um, so, yeah, keep an eye on their research as well. Um, in the meantime, when the Baykeeper was uh, doing litter audits and microplastic audits on beaches with community groups, um, we got actually to a very similar kind of number where... 80% uh, of the microplastics that were found on the beaches in the bay were hard plastic fragments as well. Um, and the second worst offender on the beaches was actually nurdles, those small plastic pellets that are lost in transport when they go to plastic factories to be uh, molded into plastic items. And uh, those nurdles are also lost by plastic factories in the environment when they don't clean up spills and things like that. So we find heaps and heaps of those on, on the beaches as well. Um, another thing we wanted to know, obviously, is is the problem getting worse over time? Because uh, I just smacked you in the face with these in incredible numbers. Uh, unfortunately, it is. And when we compare two rivers together in terms of microplastics, we'll find that the Maribyrnong is kind of linearly getting worse over time over the last few years. So between 2015 and 2020. But the Yarra is actually exponentially getting worse. And that is mostly correlated to the population growth in Melbourne. And that makes sense when you think about it, right? Because more people move into an area, the density of people becomes higher. All of those people are using plastic uh, and a lot of that plastic gets lost as well. Um, so those are the, um, yeah, the, the very, very short uh, <laughs> sub of the report. Um, there is also good news though, and I, this is something about the research that nobody saw coming, which I'm very excited about. When we tested for all of those different litter items and just tracking them separately to see if they were getting worse or better or staying the same over time, uh, most of the, pretty much every single item we were tracking, so I'm talking about cigarette butts, nurdles, plastic fragments, lolly wrappers, those kinds of things. When we look at those individual items, we see that pretty much every single one of them is either staying the same over time or getting worse in terms of being lost in the environment, except plastic straws. Mm. And I really love this result of the research because, if, as you know, community members and businesses have really banded together on the issue of plastic straws for a few years now. Uh, people have been replacing paper, uh, plastic straws with paper ones. A lot of businesses don't even offer plastic straws anymore. Uh, and community members are refusing to use plastic straws uh, on a quite a mass scale. And we are seeing that in the research. We are seeing the effects of all of that community action and banding together and collaborating on this issue back in the data because plastic straws are the only item that is significantly decreasing over time as litter in the, uh, in the Yarra and the Maribyrnong rivers. So anyone who has refused a plastic straw lately, uh, pat yourself on the back. And it really proves for us that community action works. 
um, and the grassroots action that people are taking is really making a difference for the difference for the environment. Even if you think that you know, oh, I'm just going to refuse a plastic straw, but what difference does it make on a bigger scale? It does make a difference, and that's what the data is showing us. It does all make a difference. And um, there's a whole lot of uh, recommendations in here as well. Farm, let's make this a part two next time you're in because I want to explore some of those recommendations. Um, there are six, six different categories of recommendations and lots and lots of things that we can do to improve things from here. So thanks, Farm. It's awesome. We finally got to it. And um, next time you're in, let's pick this up where, we've, where we're about to leave off. Definitely, definitely. Excellent. That brings us to the end of our first marinara. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.